I'm Steve Forbes, and this is What's Ahead. Today, I sit down with Michael Milken, founder and chairman of the Milken Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank that helps people build meaningful lives, pursue effective education, and access resources. We talk about his work in healthcare, particularly with regard to the COVID-19 crisis. But first, what's ahead? Republican control of the U.S. Senate may block sizable tax increases coming out of Washington, but revenue-hungry states are eyeing huge new levies to cover deficits resulting from the pandemic, and in many cases like New York, from past spending binges and reckless, unsustainable pension promises to their employees. So watch out, taxpayers. These politicians are coming after you. One tax they're eyeing is called the gross receipts tax. It's a straight sales tax-like levy on business revenues without any deductions for expenses. Say a dry cleaner has revenues before expenses like rent, salaries, utilities, machinery, and other items of $250,000. The gross receipts tax of, say, 5% would hit this enterprise with a new cost of $12,500, even if the firm has little in the way of a profit or even a loss in this COVID-19-impacted economy, it would be liable for this new tax. Needless to say, many struggling enterprises will go broke. Not good for jobs in a weak economy, but it's even worse than this. The tax is a pyramid-like expense that hits all business-to-business transactions. A manufacturer, for instance, buys a lot of items to make a product. All of those materials would become more costly. The manufacturer would have to raise prices to stay in business. Consumers would be hit with these higher prices. This kind of tax will also hurt startups, making it more difficult for them to succeed. Higher prices, more bankruptcies, fewer profits for remaining businesses with which to expand. Hardly a formula for creating prosperity or a vibrant stock market. Yet short-sighted politicians are ready to impose such a levy to grab more revenue. Obviously, they won't collect nearly as much as they think they will, and they'll have feebler economies as a result. One example of the destructiveness of this kind of thinking is New Jersey, which is home to processing facilities for transactions on NASDAQ and other stock exchanges. New Jersey is mulling a gross receipts-like tax on all of those transactions. The state thinks this will be a nifty way to raise a quick $10 billion. But guess what? Leaders of NASDAQ and other exchanges will soon be meeting with Texas Governor Greg Abbott about moving their facilities to the Lone Star State where they can do business unmolested by tax collectors. Other states are also inviting these exchanges to come to them. Now, Washington may soon give states some more money for direct costs of coping with the pandemic, but this will be a one-time only shot of revenue. Politicians, like every American household, must learn to live within their means. And now my interview with Mike Milken. My special guest today is Michael Milken, who has lived an extraordinary life. The Milken Institute, made up of 10 centers, including the Milken Center for Advancing the American Dream. I love that. Uh, Milken Institute School of Public Health at uh, George Washington University. Uh, Years ago, over his career, Mike has financed amazingly 3,000 companies, and he had a profound insight decades ago when he everyone said, oh, these new high-risk bonds, junk bonds, something new. Mike pointed out, no, those instruments have been around for 200 years, and he's just updated them for the modern world. 
But Mike said something at the time that was profoundly important. He said credit risk is low for the future, that some of these seemingly low-rated companies were actually on the cusp of doing great things, and established companies like Kodak and others were doing well in the present, but they didn't end up having much of a future. And he saw that. Take, for example, cell phones or handhelds, now really computers, supercomputers in our hand. As Mike said, years ago, it was difficult to get people interested in telephonic technology. He helped finance a company called MCI, which uh, decades ago had all of 35 people and went up against AT&T, then a legal monopoly with 1.4 million employees. But MCI and McGowan were on the cutting edge of technology, so the rating agencies didn't get it, but Mike did. And so those handhelds today, Mike Milken helped make it possible. Cable television and all that flowed from that. That had its genesis with Ted Turner and CNN. Mike Milken backed Ted Turner. And this was at a time when cable was under fierce political attack. I remember going to movie theaters and they had petitions to ban cable TV because they said it was a threat to free television. How could cable succeed when you paid money for it when you had free television? Well, we saw how that turned out. Mike also, during his career, has been advocating and making steps to make it more possible for women to get capital to start businesses, unlocking that huge entrepreneurial font of energy. And African-Americans, he helped finance a man named Reginald Lewis, who uh, decades ago created the first billion-dollar company by an African-American. Tragically, uh, Lewis died from brain cancer at the age of 50. But shortly after he died, his book came out that he wrote before his death, which was entitled, Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? And so Mike has been a pioneer. He has an annual conference that I think is better than the Davos conference, very intense. And at that conference, no speeches are allowed. It's all panels. And here's what Mike said about why he does it that way. He says, you learn more by seeing the world through someone else's eyes. And so most notable is work on health care, especially in numerous life-threatening diseases. Astonishing achievements, and we'll get to discussing this now. His father had melanoma in 1979. His mother-in-law had cancer. And instead of just uh, mourning what happened there, Mike Milken decided to do something about it. And so what we'll discuss with the Melanoma Research Alliance came up with over a dozen treatments. There been a huge decline in mortality. Prostate cancer, he was diagnosed with it very late, should have been a death sentence, but he did things about it. And as a result, there's been over an 80% decline in mortality uh, from prostate cancer. We'll be discussing his great work in recent months on uh, COVID. But uh, first on philanthropy, Mike, you've been involved in philanthropy even uh, when you were heavily involved in finance since the 1970s. You recognize, I think, another truism is that people think of philanthropy and commerce as polar opposites. I think you recognize that they're two sides of the same coin, meeting the needs and wants of other people. Walk us through how you got interested in philanthropy, especially uh, healthcare. I think it came through your family, but walk us through how you became not only interested, but uh, doing so much about it to, to our benefit, including me, who had prostate cancer a decade ago. I had it. And uh, what... Uh, should have been a death sentence. No, we were able to uh, stop it. Take it out. Steve, you know, there's this phrase, life gets in the way. You have a plan, you're planning to do something, 
and then some event occurs. And my mother-in-law, father, eight other relatives had come down with cancer uh, in the 1970s, and all of them ended up passing away. And it thrust me into a few years of trying to figure out how to accelerate science. And I think with my father, I visited most of the major cancer centers. I've become financially independent in the mid-1970s. My academic theories of capital structure or finance had proved uh, to be correct during the 73-76 period. And I could not share, as if I was a college professor, the success of these ideas put into practice with my father because his melanoma had occurred and it became how, how we could do anything to save his life. And during this exact same time, uh, Lori and, and my children were having serious health issues in a different area of pediatric neurology and things. And so there was really two full-time jobs, one medical day and night, there was no time off and one trying to finance companies, businesses, create financial markets. And each of them had a throwback. My father talking to me about family and a family that he had lost. And for me, I think I had told you once, I wanted to run the space program after Sputnik went up in 1950. 11-year-old, you wrote a letter to uh, President Eisenhower offering your services to uh, run the space program. Right. It was also a very important time in history in that it was the 40th anniversary of Forbes. And the 1957, 67, and 77 issues of Forbes I literally carried around in my briefcase for decades. I would read them, whether I was on the bus or something, just to reflect on what had occurred over this period of time. Well, thank you um, for our uh, listeners and viewers. Each of those issues were not only looking to the future, but also reflective of why certain people and companies succeeded and why they didn't. A lot of morality tales in those issues. Uh, that you could learn that, yes, times and circumstances change, but patterns of uh, success and then uh, lack of success. As my father liked to say, if you think you've arrived, you're ready to be shown the door. Uh, life does not stand still, not in uh, economics and uh, not in the way our bodies function. It, uh, it's ongoing. I would say for me, Steve, the 67 and 77 issue uh, I considered two of the greatest magazines issues ever published. And as you said, it reflects society, norms, uh, ups and downs, and perspective. Um, for me, the next change was really the Watts riots in 65. And here I was in Los Angeles, and Los Angeles was on fire. You didn't have to go to Vietnam to see armed personnel carriers on the street. And I eventually um, was able to go and see for myself what was occurring. And I met this young African-American man who had watched the factory he worked in burn down. And now he had no job. 
a wife and a child and no savings. But he told me he would never get access to money, capital. No one would invest with him because he was black, uh, his, nor would his father. And that minute, I had to kind of give up my view of running our space program and switch to business since when I studied credit at Berkeley and I studied capital structure at Wharton, all of history was different than what people thought about credit. And even during the depression, the spreads were wider than they needed to be due to differentials in credit. And so for me, when you mentioned Reg Lewis, it kind of booked in 1965 Watts riots and 20, 21 years later uh, funding Reg. And I viewed Reg in many ways as the Jackie Robinson of business. And I traveled the country in the latter part of the 80s with Reg going to high schools, colleges, uh, 101 black men meetings to let them know that they could build a large business, capital would be available, and they didn't have to sell out if they had a good idea. And today's events that occurred starting with Minneapolis in May, you know, have brought me back 50 years or more to just to think about what we need to do. Uh, let's quickly pursue that because one of the uh, complaints, uh, as you know, the Latino community in the United States, many people don't realize, have been starting businesses at uh, three times the pace of almost any other group in America. And African-Americans were starting to create uh, new businesses at a higher pace uh, in the last three or four years until uh, the COVID crisis. But one of the complaints was that about the lack of capital. And once upon a time, banks, community banks, provided credit for uh, startups. Uh, people wanted to start a business. It was normal. You could get a bank loan, which uh, today the regulators would uh, look askance at. Oh, it's risky. <laughs> you don't have anything there. But bankers knew their own communities and the people there. Uh, is there a way, uh, do you think, post-COVID, when we start to get back on our feet again, that we can have a, a financial environment where, yes, you got to make sound loans, but where making loans to uh, new businesses can then be the norm rather than the abnorm? I think the answer is yes, Steve. Our Center for Financial Markets at the Institute and myself have spent 10 months focused on minority-controlled banks. We've had a lot of discussions over the years about food deserts that there isn't a supermarket, you can't get right. berries or other healthy foods, but there's financial deserts, there's health deserts. And so in many of the minority communities of the United States, there is not one financial institution. And there's 125 or so minority um, banks and community banks. There is now universal interest in getting more equity capital into them so they can loan into their communities. Very little capital was raised for these institutions between the financial crisis of 2008, nine, right, and 10 years later. And so uh, when they wanted to get money out to these communities, as you've pointed out, many of the major banks are not in these communities or any financial institutions. So uh, we're hoping in the next round of government assistance that a great deal of capital 
when you make deposits into these institutions, they can only loan, say, 80 cents, 90 cents on the dollar. If you buy subordinated debt or you buy equity, then they can loan 10 times as much. So you're going to have 12 times as much as the bang from this investment. And Bank of America and others have recently made commitments to invest in the equity of these minority banks as a way of developing these opportunities. And it's really a three-part program. One, let's get capital into the hands of people that can loan it to these communities and help start a business. Two, let's provide mentorship to them so they have expertise. And three, let's provide the technology. Uh, let's uh, get to uh, the COVID crisis. Your site, you have a wonderful uh, tracker that uh, gives uh, the number of uh, vaccines that uh, are being uh, formulated, where they stand in trials. I think there's over 200 vaccines, 37 are in trials now, 300 therapeutic uh, treatments. It seems that certainly, uh, as you've pointed out, the way we manufacture vaccines, so to speak, has changed dramatically. And what would have taken 10 years in the 1950s, we're now doing in a matter of months. And on the therapeutic front, I know that there are certain people, we know their names, who if they'd gotten this disease in March would not have made it, but because of the therapeutics developed since then, uh, whether they're new ones or realizing that old uh, medicines could have new applications, uh, could survive this disease. Give us a progress report first on the vaccines and then the therapeutics and whether in the next few months we will be able to say we're conquering this disease. So the lessons that I had learned really in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and so on were, if you want to accelerate science, there's a number of things you have to do. And if you think of it as a relay race, can you start all the runners? The first runner is sprinting, then the last one is walking, but they're all moving. So one of the things the government has done when you talk about vaccines, under BARDA, the Biomedical Advanced uh, Research Development Authority. We work very closely with them, the NIH and others, FDA, where let's build the manufacturing facilities now. Let's not wait and see if they work. Let's manufacture the vaccines now. Uh, we had estimated, Steve, that it was costing just the United States $1 trillion a month. In addition to that, the human cost from mental health and others, loss of businesses, loss of self-worth, family breakdowns were incalculable, the amount. So let's, investing 10 or 20 billion, whether it works or not, was a really small investment. And so the very first funding went to Moderna. And Moderna put its vaccine in March into human beings. Now, if out of the 213 or so vaccines, if you're rooting for one, there's reasons to root for Moderna. It's an RNA vaccine, a different kind of vaccine. It sends a signal to your body to make the antibodies to resist. And so it's a whole different form of technology. I think the phrase is no actual attenuated viruses have uh, been done before. This is a whole new thing, but it is uh, much easier, I think, to uh, manufacture it uh, because of the way they're doing it. Also, the idea that if this works, it could work for all future viruses. Right. 
11 days after China released the DNA of the virus, Moderna started in the vaccine. And it was nine weeks from then to a human being. Now, technology allows us to do so many different things today. Uh, computers a million times faster, data storage one billionth of the cost, et cetera. That this is an amazing story of the commitment. And one of the things I felt I needed to do, Steve, was to break our activities into six parts. One, education. What do we need to know? Two, prevention. Can we prevent you from getting this disease? Are there antibodies, et cetera, antivirals that can, if not prevent you from the disease, prevent it from going to your lungs? Third, testing. And I would say to you, if you say to me 10 months later, what I've been most disappointed on is, you know, it's hard for me to believe we don't have a home test that's easy, simple, and accurate 10 months later, that at little to no cost, that we couldn't do those tests. And my guess is we'll eventually get there, but it's been way too long. Uh, the fourth element is treatment. How do you treat a person? And there was tremendous knowledge exchanged between China, Italy, the United States, those countries that got hit earlier, what worked, what didn't work. The fifth is cure. Okay, how are we going to cure this? How are we going to stop it? And the sixth, just as important, was financial underpinnings for our society as we know it. And this, the government has been extremely responsive, as has other governments around the world to this challenge. And the world turned out to be a lot different than people thought it would be because of that government response. So let's turn our attention to vaccines. The dramatic change that's occurred is this enormous cooperation between people. When I tried to identify in the 70s, how do you accelerate science? It was all these silos and very little cooperation. We eventually figured them out how to get them to cooperate, no funding unless you share your data. Okay, so many people told me, well, their work is too important. I have to wait for Nature Magazine or Cell. I told them that's okay. Our money is for people that aren't as important as they are. Because they're so important, they'll have no problem raising money and we'll take care of the others. Uh, within a few months, everyone shared. And I would say these pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, have done everything they could to collaborate. As Tal Zaks, the chief medical officer of Moderna pointed out, he's competing against the virus. He's not competing against J&J &J or Pfizer or anyone else in this solution. The Chinese vaccine, has gone into 30 or 40,000 people in the UAE, and many of the senior officials in the UAE have taken it. The Soviet Union had enormous science, but so does Russia, that was structured there, and their vaccine that the world might be skeptical on, there's a number of people looking at that. So there are a number of vaccines. It's expected maybe that the Pfizer vaccine, which has a German partner, might be put into humans faster in Germany than in the US. And I don't have to tell you, Steve, the political nature of the debate over vaccines, antivirals, mistakes made, et cetera. 
has made it hard in a sense for us to bring things out faster. I'm still expecting vaccines to be in more than a million people by the end of this year between this group. Many of them uh, have had little to no side effects and are very promising, but it's really been this collaboration on one between this industry. As you know, uh, you had Gilead open up their patents and allow Pakistan and India that make a lot of generics to manufacture theirs that was approved free without any royalties. And so you've had these changes that have occurred in companies that were extremely competitive uh, as it relates to this virus. And it reminds me when you read about World War II and how industry responded to the challenge after Pearl Harbor, converted their manufacturing plants, it was kind of everyone on deck. And I think that when the story is written, we'll learn more and more stories about what industry did to try to respond here. You uh, mentioned, uh, the, unfortunately, how politics has uh, reared its head in here. Do you think in terms of, uh, I'm thinking of AstraZeneca, uh, the, the test was uh, halted for a while, and some speculated the FDA was being overly cautious because of the political environment, whereas in Britain, uh, they resumed the testing uh, far faster. Does this poisonous political environment end up inhibiting getting these vaccines out because everyone wants to be extra cautious so no fingers can be pointed at them? So in all the 50 years I've spent working here, I would say to you, there's been numerous schools of thought. Andy Grove or Gary Becker, Nobel Prize winner, they felt that what you should do is that the product, the drug, the vaccine, the antiviral antibody does no harm, that that should be the level that you should operate, that it's doing no harm. And the marketplace will decide whether it works or not. You can imagine being a government official, and if something goes wrong, there's your career, there's your life in this environment. So you're going to dot every I, cross every T, but not only once, you might do it 10 times. And so it would have a tendency to slow things down. One of the areas we saw, particularly in the 60s and 70s, when you think of a Steve McQueen or someone, we prevent people from taking drugs who are an end stage. They're moving to death. Right. And we say, well, don't take this experimental drug. We need to do more work because it could have negative effects. Well, it's hard to have more negative effects than death. Dying. And so they went, as you know, to Mexico or other places in the world to test these treatments where you couldn't get them in the United States. I do believe today that modern science with more than 200 vaccines, we will find a solution. We might find it sooner in antivirals and antibodies. We've been running trials at our various foundations. Uh, I reached out to Jonathan Simons, who has the Prostate Cancer Foundation in February, and asked him to take the worldwide leadership on anything that had ever worked in cancer that might stop this virus. And we discovered a few things. One, there's a 
something called CAMSTAT. Clinical trials are going on in the United States today. This was for pancreatitis. Uh, it has little to no side effects. It's a generic. It's been used in Japan for 30 or 40 years, but it quite possibly will prevent the virus from going to your lungs. The other are drugs called ADT drugs, right. hydrogen deprivation therapy, and we with this a protein called Tempers 2. If you shut down your testosterone, it's quite possible you can't create Tempers 2. And if you can't create Tempers 2, then COVID-19 can't get into your lungs. So therefore, the serious repercussions. Many cancer drugs have had to deal with the cytokine storm. And so over the last 30 years... That is, your immune system goes in overdrive and ends up uh, harming you instead of saving you. Correct. And so if you think about it simply, the rule of thumb in cancer, starting with the work of Steve Rosenberg in the 80s, one of our young scientists, and Jim Allison, another in the early and mid-90s, was that your immune system is smarter than all of us. It had been doing a great job your whole life, and then something happened. Either your immune system was compromised, weakened, inflammation. It was disguised like a Klingon warship from Star Trek, and you couldn't see that it was cancer uh, from that standpoint. Or something turned off your immune system. That was Jim Allison's work. Right. For which you got a Nobel Prize. He won a Nobel Prize, yes. By looking at the immune system, when you turn it back on, or you unleash it, now it's like getting the Army, the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force, and the Coast Guard all working. And that, as you point out, that overreaction of your immune system could be just as damaging what we're seeing as a side effect for COVID in response to it when it's in your lungs. But these cancer therapies would not be successful if they didn't shut down the cytokine storm. And so that's why we looked at so many of these therapies at that time. And so I am very optimistic in the next three to eight months, we will have a solution here. But I think it's brought home something that you've heard me say probably every time we're together, that 50% of all economic growth can be traced to public health and medical research and just how important this is in the advancement of civilization. You know, life expectancy in 1900 was 31 for the whole planet. Today, it's in the 70s. And so you had very little increase in life expectancy and 4 million years of evolution until we developed these technologies. And one in three Americans died either from dysentery tuberculosis or pneumonia, none of those are major causes today. Uh, but getting penicillin and these other advances has changed the world. And so this has reinforced the importance uh, to our society. So uh, the, the bottom line is uh, we're gonna lick this thing in a way that uh, if we had discussed this at a conference in December of 2019 would have seemed preposterous, but thanks to the efforts of people like you, it is happening. But you bring up a very interesting point on do no harm. Some regulatory agencies adopt that, 
unlike us. We have the, as you know, the thalidomide scandal of the 60s. And so uh, a drug could no longer just be proven to be safe. It had to prove to actually work. Well, that's nice, except we find out that a lot of these drugs have off-label uses that are uh, very uh, applicable. As you say, when these some of these old cancer drugs or these old ones uh, could have uh, new uses and these new things that come up. And you've said in the past that our uh, process of approving drugs is too rigid. Do you think we're learning from this COVID crisis? What kind of reforms do you see coming where we don't have to have what they call EROM's law, Moore's law spelled backwards, where it seems to take years and years, billions and billions of dollars, which means a lot of drugs that could come on the market don't because just the sheer expense and regulatory obstacles in the way. Give us your thoughts on that, how uh, we, we don't want anything on the market, but other countries seem to have a more uh, flexible system that uh, doesn't block a lot of these potential new drugs. I think... Um we have the insight of four former heads of the FDA on our medical foundations. And I would say the FDA, very sophisticated, approved drugs faster, was doing an excellent job and still is. But you're in a very highly charged political environment that whether you go left or right, it's wrong <laughs> uh, from that standpoint. And so they're other places in the world where you might try something first. And that's why I mentioned the Chinese vaccine and the Russian vaccine today. We will not be the first one by a long shot of approving those vaccines from that standpoint. And you still have many uh, drugs that have been used for three decades that haven't been approved in the United States. But I would say the FDA in the, if I had to do it by look at decades of our work has changed dramatically, dramatically in the last 30 years. And the talent and the commitment of the people is significant. We need to make sure that we have funded the FDA, which has been one of our efforts to the level that needed to be funded. It's still the gold standard, dedicated people, but we have to measure risk and reward. Just like, Steve, we've had to measure risk and reward in our economy. If you're going to shut down the entire economy, you have to ask yourself, what are the side effects of it? We are quite concerned about mental health. How many people are just hanging on, right. hoping that next month it'll be over, or the next month, how long can they handle on? We, we saw in April and May, an 80% cancellation rate in mental health visits, that people just weren't having them. There was a 20 to 40% reduction in cancer diagnosis, strokes, and heart attacks. Hard to believe that any dramatic change had occurred, but they didn't want to enter into the medical system. So we have some collateral damage that we're going to be dealing with, and not the least of which, what about all the students that aren't physically going to school? Yep. You're only six once. You're only seven once. What are the long-term ramifications for these children of not having social interaction, et cetera? And so to me, I feel we'll all be judged on what we did during this period of time. And 
if it takes three months to recover for every month that goes on from here, then six months before we make enormous progress would be another 18 months before we could get back to what we might call normal. So every day is important uh, from that standpoint. Let's go uh, in terms of the FDA. Hopefully they will uh, become even more flexible and quicker and uh, more sympathetic to people at end stage of life. I know laws have been passed to try to, to prod that. In terms of uh, education, you've uh, made the point that in terms of how we spend money, people should understand early on that a house is not an investment. It's a place in which to live, that if you want to invest, you go into the market. Even if it's just index funds, you'll get a better return than living in a house. Steve, there, there was a study which we worked on that was done a number of years ago, and, and they interviewed 35,000 people in the middle class in Asia. And what were their goals? How did they spend their money? The number one expenditure of the middle class was food. Number two was education. And as you've pointed out in the United States, for some people, 50% of their income goes to housing and transportation. And only 2% goes to supplemental education. In the long run, uh, it's the education of subsequent generations that will determine the success of a city, a state, a region, a country. And it was so telling when you looked at whether it was India or Indonesia or Korea, what sacrifices the family was willing to make for the education of their child. Give us your thoughts on uh, what's happening in terms of our universities. As you've pointed out in the past, they are a crown jewel, attracting people from around the world. Um, immigration, we've been foolish in letting a lot of the people educated here, in effect, forcing them out of the country, like a baseball team gets a great person from a farm system, and then we send them back instead of using them. But uh, what's happened in terms of the universities and colleges, both financially and the seeming lack of tolerance, what how do you see that unfolding? Are we about to lose these crown jewels? Steve, I think there's a few things that are occurring. One, there's an underlying financial. Will liberal art colleges, will 3,000 colleges be able to sustain themselves in a world where more jobs require technology knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, whether you're working for Activision and creating video games or whether you're working for Google, Microsoft, or another company? So. I think the question is, are they gonna provide the skills that give you an opportunity? So that's one, and I, and I do think the future of many of our liberal arts universities is in question brought on by COVID. Number two, our science universities, I still see continuing. The US really never focused, and we did everything we could in the 70s and 80s and 90s and to today, to talk about the fact that the U.S. was receiving a half a trillion worth of human capital a year coming to our universities. And after 9-11, we made it very difficult to get into the United States. You could be accepted to the school Princeton, where you went, but you might not be able to get in or out. We had young scientists that they came, they could not leave because they couldn't come back. 
And so you saw a tremendous growth in the UK where students, particularly from Asia, wanted to go to school in English. And the UK developed five of the top 20 bioscience universities in the world. Australia opened up for a lot of the students went there. Canada, I think the largest Asian population in any city in North America became Toronto. So as you look at those, those countries make up half today of the leading bioscience universities in the world, as China eventually is developing their own leading. So I think you're right in highlighting that those countries that are the leaders in bioscience and other areas will be the leaders in this century, the 21st century. But we still see that students want to come to the United States. The American dream is alive and well in dozens or a hundred countries around the world today. This, of course, leads uh, to immigration. Do you think, hopefully, when the election's out of the way, that we can uh, get uh, a sane immigration policy that enables people to uh, come in the, to the country who uh, want to contribute to the country? You've made the point in the past that in Silicon Valley, those who are foreign-born or first-generation uh, make a disproportionate number of the executives and the uh, programmers and scientists that made Silicon Valley what it is. Uh, can we get the best of all worlds, take the emotions out of it and say what makes sense and what doesn't? Canada seems to have made a stab at it successfully. Um, I think we will as a country here. It became highly politicized, as you know. And um, I'm not sure we fully recovered from 9-11 in that standpoint. But I think what people don't realize, there's something called social capital. People look at balance sheets, but the financial part of a company or a country is small, is small compared to the human capital and the social capital. Gary Becker won a Nobel Prize for his work in 92, talking about more than 75% of the real assets are the productivity of the people. Henry Ford talked about it almost a century ago. You know, you can take my factories, just give me my people, and we'll rebuild stronger than ever. Uh, the second one is social capital. In a major survey, as we have been focused on creating the center in Washington for advancing the American dream, uh, and looking at where you're born in the United States quite often determines whether you can rise from the lowest socioeconomic to the highest in your lifetime. So if you're born in Salt Lake, you have maybe a two and a half times higher probability of rising from lowest to highest in your lifetime than if you were born in Charlotte and why. But I would say when you looked at the surveys as what is the American dream, 86% of the people responded, number one response, freedom. Freedom to live your life, freedom in your religion, freedom where you're going to live, freedom to raise your children. And I think most people in the United States who talk about things such as socialism and other aren't really fully knowledgeable of what, how important freedom is, freedom of expression. The lowest response on these surveys was personal wealth at 
And so it's this freedom. And as we interview thousands of people on what the American dream means to them, they tell you story after story of what they were able to accomplish in this country. And I think those stories will continue. As you know, the media has been in full force since November of 2016. And my guess is we might see more balance on a college campuses coming up in the next few years. But the, the immigrant, as you talked about, the person from Latin America or Asia, the person from South Korea just can't help themselves. They're going to form a business. They're going to create something when they come here. Uh, that spirit exists in this country. Uh, and I think recognizing the access to capital component, this formula that I wrote in 1965 at Berkeley after the Watts riots, that access to capital served as a multiplier effect on the world's largest asset, human capital, social capital, and then the small part, which is financial. Well, as you've uh, pointed out, Mike, uh, the 3,000 companies you've uh, financed over your remarkable career, I think you said only one CEO talked about the prime motivation being money. The rest wanted to do something. Yeah, they get rich, that's great, but the desire to do something was, was what made them tick. And passion. Yes. You have passion. When you write your editorials, I can just feel that passion when I read it. You have to have passion. If you look at the world's most valuable company, Apple, today, its success was a byproduct going back to Steve Jobs' passion. Many of the people that were the outsiders, so many of the people even that built these software companies did not graduate college or left college for a passion of something that they were going to do. But that's what immigration brings us. It brings us this drive, this belief in a dream of an opportunity that they might not have in their own country, which we offer them here. Mike, thank you very much for uh, your time. And uh, the, the news on COVID is good, but the news too about how you see the future and our great asset, which as you say is freedom, which is the font of innovation, enabling people to uh, develop their talents, realize the talents, and also, too, a society where if you fall down and fail, it's not uh, a badge forever. You get up and you figure what went wrong, learn, and try again. And uh, that ability to try again is, is crucial. Thank you so much, and uh, continue your, your splendid work. Uh, our health depends on it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Good health to you. And I'm going to tonight go and look again at my 1967 and 77 Forbes issues. I am too. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes. Looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.